Let's pray. God, that song is so fitting. It's fitting for the passage we're going to look at today. It's fitting for the book of Acts. And God, it's fitting for our lives. We should live lives of awestruck wonder of you and your love for us, of the way that you are at work in the world and the way that you work in our lives and in the world around us, the way that you use us to accomplish your purposes, God. I pray that you would uh, be with us now as we look at the book of Acts, the early church, the, the very first Christian church. God, help us to see what it is that we can learn, how we can grow, maybe ways that we need to think about our own lives or how it is that we, we interact with the world around us. God, we are indeed the next chapter that you are writing in your church on earth. So God, I just pray that you would open our ears, our hearts, our minds, that uh, we would hear what it is that you've brought us together to hear from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The Bible tells us that uh, did every person in his image. <laughs> and yet I wonder if we see people that way. I wonder if we see people in God's image, if we see the image of God in others, or do we just kind of self-blind ourselves and we just see God in us? Because one of the things that we think about an awful lot, and, and we're going to look at that in the book of Acts in the 15th chapter today, it's what they're going to talk about. We're going to talk about who are the right people. Who are the right people and, and how do we know, how do we engage, how do we talk to them or about them? It, it seems that that's an important thing in our world. It has been for a very, very long time. It doesn't matter if you're trying to join a country club or uh, maybe a group in a, in a community with a social thing or something else. Politics certainly talks right people and wrong people. But we do in a church. We even talk about who gets to be in and who gets to be out. You know, some folks just love to be in the position of making those decisions. I think we learn that kind of division at a very young age at grade school. Who are the cool kids and who aren't? Who are the kids that we want to include? And, and I remember uh, being a kid going back to picking teams. And man, it was the worst thing in the world because you picked two captains and then they handpicked the teams and somebody had to be last and it was awful and you knew who was in and who was out. Somehow, that's just sort of how we think about who's in and who's out. Same question gets asked in our church today. Churches all over the country, all over the world, who belongs and who doesn't? Who should be included and welcomed? Who should we go try to invite? Who is it that has a place at the table and who should not have a place at the table? That's the kind of thing that we do all the time. But it shouldn't happen in religion. It shouldn't happen in churches. See, some people just, they like to make rules. They like to make rules and form structures because when they do that, they can include some people and exclude others. And, and in the book of Acts, in the 15th chapter today that we're going to look at, we see these same ideas are very alive and well in the very first Christian church in the life of the way as this new movement of God was just getting underway. It's sad really because God sent Jesus because God wants to be in a personal relationship with every single one of us. And what do we do? We, we create structures. We create rules. We create all kinds of things and do our very best. But at the end of the day, only prevent some people from not being included, from not doing the very thing God wants us to do. If we understand what the Bible really says, God wants all of us to be in a personal relationship with Him. 
Our business then should be about including everyone we can in the good news of Jesus. So we're going to look at Acts. We're going to go back to something we uh, put a pin in a while ago, and we're going to start in chapter 15. If you did what I encouraged last week and went through and read two chapters a day over the last week, you're all caught up. You made it through the first 14 chapters. Dater and I were talking about this at, at our house, and she said, you know, it's kind of like something that we watch on TV, a series, or, or maybe the Marvel movies where you can't wait for the next one to come out. The drama that happens in the book of Acts is almost otherworldly. If you made a movie about it, it would almost be an unbelievable movie. And yet it's fact, it's truth, it's history. And we get to study it and read it, and we get invited to be a part of living it in our world today. So I'm going to real quickly get you caught up. Everything that happened before chapter 15 is too much to go through in a day, so I'm going to give you some highlights. Jesus has ascended to heaven. The Holy Spirit has come to earth just as Jesus promised, and we've experienced the day of Pentecost, where in the Old Testament the Holy Spirit came upon individual people for individual events, for a specific purpose, for a specific time. At the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and filled all the believers. And the first result of that, the Holy Spirit's arrival, Peter preaches what's probably the best sermon in all of history outside of Jesus. 3,000 people come to faith. 3,000 people come to faith because of Peter's sermon. It's amazing. In one day, the, the early church jumps from a couple hundred people, 120 folks, To over 3,000 because of the arrival of the Holy Spirit and that one message from Peter. We see uh, in the early church that their understanding of the Old Testament tithe, which is such a controversial thing still in our world, I don't understand why it is. People say, well, tithe isn't in the New Testament. Well, actually it is. The understanding of the tithe is in the New Testament. But it's actually above and beyond that. It's built on by the early believers of the way who were so committed to Jesus and the cause of introducing everybody they knew to him, that they took the tithe, which was 10%, and they went all the way to radical generosity. And that's what we read about happening in the early church. The temple taught them 10%, but what they were living was everything that they had. They, They sold, some of them sold everything they had, all of their possessions, and they gave because of the cause of the sake, uh, the sake of the cause of Christ. They were so committed to Jesus, they wanted everyone to no matter what it took. Miracles became commonplace. The Holy Spirit is moving across the world, and people are being touched by God in ways that they hadn't seen before. The disciples are sharing the truth of Jesus with anybody that will listen. And God loves to pour out His mercy, His grace, and His miracles on people. I hear every once in a while people that say miracles don't exist anymore. After uh, Pentecost and the Holy Spirit left, there aren't any more miracles. The Holy Spirit didn't leave and there are still miracles. If I asked you to raise your hands if you've had one in your world or if you've personally witnessed one, most of you would raise your hand and say, yeah, I'm pretty sure I've seen one. Miracles became commonplace in the early church. They became commonplace because God loves to pour out His mercy and His grace and His miracles on people. Why? Because God is in the God, a God of abundance. We've got this mentality of scarcity. You know, whatever we get something, I've got to hold on to it because it might not last or I might lose it or I might not have enough. And that's not what we read in Scripture. That's not what we read in the early church. What we read in the early church is people understood the radical generosity and spirit of abundance of God and they couldn't help but being caught up in it and sharing it with other people. And then there's the 
the first treachery in the church. There's this man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira. And they did what all the other people around were doing. They sold this piece of land and they brought the money to the disciples. And the disciples said, is that everything? Are you bringing everything that you got for the land? And they said, yes. And Ananias said, yes, first. And Sapphira said, yes, second. And they said, you know, don't lie to the Holy Spirit. But they did because they held back part for themselves. Was the problem that they kept something? No, the problem was that they lied about it. And Ananias and Sapphira were each struck dead right where they stood. And the message is, don't lie to the Holy Spirit. You know, part of the thing that we have to understand in this radical generosity is nothing's really ours in the first place. It's all God's. And, and, and we talk about giving part back to God. You know what? That's all God asks for is a portion because God gives us everything that we have. But lying to the Holy Spirit about it is not a wise move. The apostles begin to face persecution. The world around them had an awful lot at stake. Civil government and temple life in the Jewish tradition had a lot at stake that this thing called the way was beginning to bump up against. And so the apostles were persecuted. They made people understand that God saw each and every one of us in a unique and special way because God created us. And so the, the persecution begins among the elders and then the first argument happens in the church. It happens because some of the widows and the orphans were feeling like they weren't getting treated the same. They weren't getting the same amount of food as the Jewish ones were. The Gentiles, which is all of us, didn't seem to think they were getting a fair, fair bit of treatment. And so they appointed seven elders. And the seven elders' job was to take care of, of managing and helping the people to make sure all the needs were met so the apostles could continue to do the job of preaching. Then we meet this guy named Stephen, and he is the first Christian to be killed for his faith. He is pummeled with stones, with jagged rocks, until he dies. See, the thought is, you know, just like with Jesus, here's what the world told them back then. And this idea still continues today. We, we assassinate people's characters. We don't necessarily kill them. But the idea is, we don't like the message. We want to kill the movement. And so we're going to kill the messenger. So just like they did with Jesus, they decide to do with Stephen. And they take his life by throwing jagged rocks at him to end his life. And there's this guy we find out named Saul, who's in the Jewish temple, who's a Jew of Jews, as he tells himself, tells us about himself. Highly educated, intelligent, a man of wealth and position. And he nods his approval. Yep, he's thinking the best thing in the world to do to kill this movement is just start killing the leaders. And Saul nods in approval of this Death in the new faith in Jesus. The first non-Jewish converts to the faith start showing up. Cornelius, there's the apostles outreach in Samaria, there's Philip, the Ethiopian eunuch that brings the good news of the gospel all the way to northeast Africa. It's beginning to spread, it's beginning to spread quickly. The good news of Jesus is, is beginning to move like wildfire through that part of the world. Saul, the murderer, the one that said yes to killing Stephen, is confronted on the road to Damascus where he's going to bring new believers back to Jerusalem. He's confronted by the Lord, and Saul is radically changed. Saul's entire life direction has changed. He's gone from being a murdering persecutor of Christians to being the most outspoken, persecuted Christian of all. And it happens all in one moment on the road to Damascus. From that moment on, we begin to hear about Saul by his other name, Paul. Peter has a vision that becomes very important, still important to us today. 
He sees a sheet come down from heaven. It's all kinds of animals on it. And the statement that God makes is that you shouldn't call anything unclean that the Lord has made, not just for food, but people. That as this movement begins to go into the world, that it wasn't going to just be about the Jewish people. It was going to be about all people. That includes you and I. So when we think about who are the right people, who are we supposed to share the gospel with, who are we supposed to share our church with, everyone, everyone who will listen, everyone who's willing to be a part, that's what we get from Peter's vision. Paul and Barnabas begin these foreign mission journeys that much of the New Testament is about. They become much of the record. Paul's letters to the early churches become many of the books of the New Testament of the Bible. Paul plants churches and then he writes them letters to check in on them and see how they're doing. He even goes back and visits a few. That's so much of what we read about in the New Testament is Paul's follow-ups to those early churches. There's a point where Paul himself is persecuted. It happens more than once. He's pummeled with rocks because that's what they like to do back then. They leave him for dead outside of town. As soon as the disciples gather around Paul, he jumps up like nothing happened and goes about his business again, which he does more than once. But there's a message in that. When God calls you to do a task for Him, no matter how difficult, no matter how over your head, no matter how many obstacles you face, when you're faithful and obedient, God will see you through that task that He has called you to. Might not be easy, might not all be fun, it might not be that you don't face some persecution, but God will carry you through. And what might look like the end to you and to the people around you might be only the real beginning in God's eyes. But what He needs you to do is to remain faithful. All of this brings us to the book of Acts, chapter 15. There's a whole lot more that you can read about the details about that stuff. But Paul and Barnabas are sent to meet with the Jewish council after some people begin to follow them around on their journeys and they're arguing that people can't truly be saved unless they follow the law of Moses. See, I said that there was some controversy that they were, they were stirring up. And the Jewish church saw an awful lot of people turning to this new faith called the way. And they said, you can't actually follow that if you don't follow the laws of Moses. So they go back to the leaders of the church that had appointed themselves in Jerusalem and they said, these guys are, are not insisting that these new believers follow the old laws of Moses. And what we see is this, this first battle, the first tension within the church. There is the old system, old structure of the church, and there is the new, the way of Jesus in the church. And what ends up happening is that we see the, the contrast of the passion of the apostles, the passion of the early believers that just simply want to reach out and tell everybody the good news and the oppression of the leaders in church who see their hold and the power that they used to have beginning to slip away. I was called to be an outreach and evangelism pastor at a church once. I ended up leaving because I was told I was reaching the wrong kind of people. So I asked the leaders of the church, what exactly are the right kind of people? See, I had spent my time reaching people who I understood to be far from God. People who normal churches probably didn't reach out to, didn't try to create a relationship. People in the bar and restaurant industry. Folks who work seven days a week in construction and jobs building the area that everybody counted on. Jobs that maybe some folks didn't really notice, but you don't really get very far in life without them. I made it my business to get to know people who were struggling with addiction, who maybe didn't have a job or who had lost connections with family because of addictions that they couldn't beat. I didn't have the answer for them, but I knew that Jesus did. 
And I spent an awful lot of my time intentionally putting myself, myself in places where they were so that I could build relationships and have conversations, not about me, but about them and about Jesus. But apparently they were the wrong kind of people. So I asked the obvious question that you would have asked. I said, well, what are the right kind of people? Who are they? What I was told, and this is no joke, we hired you to reach the kind of people that drive Mercedes and Bentleys and Italian sports cars. We hired you to reach people with money because we need to build and grow the church. Well, nobody told me that. That's not where my heart is. I don't think that's where God's heart is. And so we came to terms and agreed it was probably best that I leave. So who are the right kind of people? Maybe you have been told in your life that you're not the right kind of person. You may have been part of a church community in the past where following the rules set by the church decades ago again by people who hadn't been around for a long time were used to control their version of the right people. See, the idea of having the right people in church is more important to some folks than actually following Jesus. Some folks would rather have people just like themselves and followed their rules and had their understanding and accepted their reasons and ways of being. That's kind of what happens in the book of Acts. See, for some people it's more important to find the right people in their eyes than it is to follow Jesus. And in my life, I have seen that that's some of the most unchristlike behavior on the part of church folks ever. And that's what we see happening in the book of Acts is this struggle. So what happens in Acts 15? Who, who are the right people and what do they have to do to be the right kind of people? So Paul and Barnabas are called back to Jerusalem in front of the council to explain themselves. They end up leaving the mission field, travel all the way back to Jerusalem to report to the men who had put themselves in charge and answer to these questions. They get there and they're so excited because they want to tell about how God is at work in the world. They want to tell what the Holy Spirit has been doing. They want to report on the miracles. They wanted to report on how it was commonplace for people to have their lives radically changed as a part of this way. Transformed in the power of the Holy Spirit. This Jesus movement was growing because ordinary men and women like you and I were experiencing in a personal way the risen Jesus in a way that was changing their life. There was energy, there was excitement, there was momentum. Everybody should have been overwhelmingly on board. They should have had attaboys, keep it up and go get some more. But the fact is some of the people were more worried about the rules and the structures and the religion and the restrictions than they were about how God is at work around them. Some things never change. Churches still have leaders, pastors, people, who are far more concerned about the appearance of faith than they are about a heart of faithfulness. They want to claim the name of Jesus, but they want to deny the spirit of Jesus' message. And that's what the apostles are running into. I served a church one time. A group of kids uh, went away to uh, an adult, uh, a teen retreat. And they went away for a couple of days, and they came back fired up. I mean, I'm talking fired up. They were excited. The first time that they came to a Sunday morning worship service, they were all dressed so that you could tell that they had all been out together. And they sat in a group kind of in the middle of the worship space. And I mean, when it came to prayers, they prayed like they believed every word and they knew the power of prayer. When it came time to sing, they sang like they believed every word of every song. It got to the end of the message and they go, one more verse, one more verse. 
Not because they wanted to hear me preach more, but they wanted more of Jesus. They had, they had gotten this Holy Spirit fire. And people noticed it, and they wanted more. They wanted more of that fire that was burning them. You know what happened? There was an older lady that sat in the row in front of them. And they had, they had been doing their thing and bringing their energy, and it was, it was awesome Holy Spirit energy that they brought. This woman turned around and she hissed at them. I choose that word carefully. She hissed them that they had clearly no idea how to properly behave in church. You don't know what you're supposed to do. You're not even, you're not even behaving yourselves. You need to be quiet and take whatever it is that you think you've got, those boisterous antics, and bring them outside the church building. And so they and their leader did just that. Rather than the gathering of believers recognizing the Holy Spirit at work and fanned the flame that God had lit, the adults dumped their own stagnant dead water all over them. And those kids listened. They were good young people. The adults got the order back, but I guarantee those young people will never forget what religious legalism without the love of God looks and feels like. God was at work doing something new and they got kicked out. And the apostles were basically running into the same thing. The old guard of the church feels like it's their job to preserve the old ways by imposing their rules on what God is currently doing among them. It still happens today. They're attempting to quench the fire the Holy Spirit is lighting people, lighting in people exactly the way that I saw in that church and I've seen so many other times. In fact, in verse 5, some of the Pharisees in chapter 19, uh, 15, some of the Pharisees got up and demanded that the new believers must follow the old laws of Moses and must undergo circumcision in order to follow the laws of Moses that we followed forever. Never mind the teachings of Jesus, their Savior, who they didn't believe in. They had to follow the laws of Moses. So in our world, this works itself out differently, but it still works itself out. Like a person has to do more than just believe in Jesus to be a Christian, right? There's got to be more to it. We can't just accept them at their word. Shouldn't we require a written statement of faith from everybody? Shouldn't a person be required to be a member before they're baptized? There's a million things that we've come to believe or that we want to insist on in the church that have nothing to do with salvation. They got nothing to do with a personal relationship with Jesus. And in fact, for the most part, what they do is take someone who's on fire for Jesus and they quench that fire that the Holy Spirit has lit in them under rules that have nothing to do with being saved. And so in this council, chapter 15, verse 8, Peter stands up and he says this, God knows people's hearts. And he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles, that's you and I, non-Jews, He accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. He made no distinction between us and them for He cleansed their hearts through faith. There are no right people and wrong people. There are just God's people. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of God. Of the Lord Jesus. So discussion follows. They listen. They want to hear more about what's happening. Suddenly their ears are a bit open to this new movement. 
And in verse 19, Peter says this, So my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, because it's a church in Antioch that they're talking about, and tell them from, to abstain from eating food offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. The decision was reached because of the history of the Jewish people. And it has little to do with being a part of the way, and it's settled on as a way of a minimum requirement for these new believers to be accepted in the outer circles of the Jewish faith community, the Jewish faith community that did not believe in the Jesus that the members of the way believed in. Today we see this lived out as divisions that we create between churches, tradition, ways of worship, places of worship, how many people to worship, denominations. You know, most of the things that separate us in the church have absolutely nothing to do with anything but human pride and ego and a desire to divide ourselves against each other, to include some and exclude others. We have denominations that claim to be the one true church. There's other denominations that claim that their understanding of the faith, their theology is superior and their interpretation of Scripture is flawless and perfect. And if you don't follow and believe, you have no chance at heaven. It's really sad because the Bible also tells us that the Holy Spirit is a spirit of unity. That we're all God's children created in God's image and we are to be people of unity. So this council in Jerusalem sends a letter to the new believers in Antioch. Not surprisingly, the new believers are thrilled when they get this letter because it tells them two things. That the adult men do not have to undergo circumcision. They were excited about that. They were also excited that they got to be a part of the Jewish faith community. They were brought into the outer edges of it. They got to be a part of a group of people that didn't even believe in Jesus the way they did. None of it did them any good. And so there's this final piece of the chapter of 15 now that the people in this new church of the way have gotten the approval, at least for the moment, of the church in Jerusalem. The final piece of chapter 15 is a dispute. It's a dispute between Paul and Barnabas. See, Paul wants to do what he did so often. He wanted to go back and check in on the churches that they planted. He wanted to see how they were doing. How were the new believers doing? Because then he knew he could go and he could write a letter to them later on and we get the privilege of reading some of those letters. And Barnabas, he agrees with the plan, but he wants to bring another guy. He wants to bring John Mark along with him. Paul strongly disagrees. And he said, John Mark had his chance. He had a chance to be a part of what we're doing, but he gave it up. He walked away. I'm not going to go back to someone who left me earlier. So Paul and Barnabas decide to go their separate ways. They both continue to do ministry work, but they do it separately. This is a tough lesson that's buried in the book of Acts And it's one of many that we need to make sure that we see for what it is and that we get a good grip on it. We need to pay close attention to it. Sometimes the people in the ways that have gotten you to where you are end up not being the people in the ways that will journey you to the next step. Paul and Barnabas decided to split ways, but God's call on them did not end. The movement of the way did not stop. They continued to write the New Testament in real time. Sometimes the people and the ways that have gotten you to where you are end up not being the people and the ways that will get you to the next level. See, we love our churches to be the same. 
We find something we like. We know all the people. Yeah, we should know we should go after new people, but we're not so comfortable because we don't know who they are. We're not sure they're like us. We like our churches to be the same, predictable, status quo. We think that all of that is stability, but that isn't true. That isn't true at all, in fact. See, there's times when people move on, and that's what's supposed to happen. They move on, and God stays on His throne. Unfortunately, more often than not, those departures, those moving ons, happen, and they have a tendency to turn ugly. They get very personal in the attacks that get launched. I remember being told early on in ministry by a wise older pastor. He said, you know, you are absolutely going to have times in ministry that you're going to love and people are going to love you. Then you're going to have times that are going to be really tough. But eventually you're going to move on. You're going to leave that call and you're going to go to another one. And here's the thing. No matter how good your time in a place or a church was, The way that you choose to leave, the way that you talk about people after you're gone, that's how you will be remembered. You will be remembered for what you said about the place and the people that you left. How true is that? Because it becomes a part of our witness. It becomes a part of our testimony. Sometimes we've got an axe that we want to grind, but the only one that it ends up hurting is us and the church. I wish that more believers understood the truth and the weight of that statement. Personal attacks and bitter feuding over selfish grudges only hurt the church. So let's make it personal. What about you? What way describes you? What way are you following in this life? Are you in the way of people who are trying to serve Jesus? Paul would call you a stumbling block. Are you the one who needs the rules and you need the religion and you need the structure because that's just the way it's supposed to be? Maybe you're in the way of what God is doing in someone's life. Maybe you're going the wrong way. You're going away from Jesus rather than toward Him. Maybe your way is the only way. If people don't agree with you, if they don't see how right you are, then there's only one thing and that is that they're wrong. Or maybe you've chosen to be like those people in the way 2,000 years ago that have chosen to give over their sin-filled life to Jesus as your Savior and you're choosing to follow Him and His way. See, whatever way describes you, we all choose one. We all choose a way and it makes the decisions and it creates the direction of our life. We're all going through life following some way. The way of Jesus is the only way that your sins will be forgiven and you can truly live the life that God created you to live. Yes, you're going to continue to sin. Yes, you're going to continue to go against what God wants for you. But following the way is the only way that you can live the life that God created you to live. So as you choose your way in this life, choose carefully. Choose carefully because there will come a point when you cannot change direction. There will come a point where you can't go a different way. That the way that you chose in this life is the way that will carry you into and through eternity. So the way that you choose makes all the difference in this life and for all of eternity. And here's what's in the balance. It isn't just you, it's the people around you. The people that ask you, why do you believe what you believe? Why do you go to church on Sunday mornings when it's a beautiful day and you could be fishing? 
Why do you do the things you do and not do the things you don't do? Why do you make the decisions that you make? What is your reason? The way that you choose to live becomes the answer. So choose your way carefully. It matters for you, and it matters for the people around you who are watching you. Let's pray. God, thank you for the testimony that we have, the witness of the early believers in the book of Acts. God, there's so much that is so exciting. There's so much that that we would just love to be a part of. And then there's moments we look at it and we think, wow, I am the problem person that they're describing. God, we want to learn from this book. We want to grow through this book. God, we are the recipients of the generosity of that first church. We are the ones who are the descendants of those early disciples and those early believers. But God, it doesn't end with us. It's not supposed to. Our job as a disciple is to disciple someone else. Our job as someone who knows the truth is to tell the truth. Our responsibility as someone to whom you have shown grace and mercy and generosity is to show grace and mercy and generosity to others. God, help us to be people who choose to follow Jesus and his way of living and of serving and of loving and of giving. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So here's my last thought for you. I've got one more song before you go. Here it is. The way that you follow in this life means everything. It means everything for how you live this life. It means everything for where you live for eternity. The way that you choose to follow means everything. You will never be a perfect person. You will never live a perfect life. There is one way that allows you to give your life to a perfect Savior. He is the one who loves you. He's the one who gave his life for you. Choose your way carefully. And my two bits of advice is choose Jesus. Thanks for coming, folks.